0: While you're taking a seat, I just wanted to remind you of one thing. I know women, uh, you know this already, women's ministry is happening this Saturday. Uh, I forgot to announce that during our announcement time. Uh, Hannah, it's this Saturday, 10.30 1030 at the Lujan's house. You guys are going to be studying through meditation, uh, what biblical meditation looks like, what it is, and why it's necessary. Uh, My wife will be leading that time of study and It's going to be a great time. So this Saturday, 10.30, all CBC women, ladies, go. It's going to be an amazing time. Um, Thanks for the reminder. I totally would have forgotten that. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, I hope that you do, go ahead and take them out and turn to Revelation chapter 22 with me. Revelation chapter 22. Last week, driving home from church, I was having a conversation with my precious daughter. She sits uh, right over there. She helps with slides. She helps set up every morning. She's here with me at seven o'clock every morning on Sundays and sets up. and And she's been sitting in the back. She has a little Bible, a little notebook. She writes notes. She uh, is trying to learn Greek and uh, writing down Greek words. And she's just a, a blessing to my soul. And we talk about the sermon as we drive home. You guys know, uh, if you've been over to my house, you know it's not a very long drive, so we don't get a, an enormous amount of time to talk, but we, we talk. And I asked her, what stood out to you in the sermon? What, what uh, impacted you? What questions did you have? She always starts with questions. It's really, really helpful. But last week, when I asked her, what did you learn? What stood out? What, what really encouraged your heart? What was maybe something new that you didn't know? She said, I always knew that Jesus was coming back. I like how kids say that, by the way. Like, we know you didn't always know, but we know what you mean when you say you always knew. I always knew that Jesus was coming back. I just didn't know that there were things that we, could get, that we could do to get ready for him coming back. I just thought we waited and he showed up. But now I know that there are things that I can do to get ready for him while I'm waiting. And I just thought, that's amazing. That, that is just exactly the point of the sermon, exactly the point of the text. And I just thought, That's, I, I, can, I can die happy. That was a, an amazing conversation. But then she said this. She gave me the best illustration possible. She said, it's like if you go on a trip and you know that the trip's coming, you don't just wait. You pack, you plan, you prepare. And so she said, we can start packing and preparing now for Jesus to return. That's brilliant. That's exactly what John is trying to say. Jesus is coming back, and we can do things to get ready, to be prepared. Last week, we looked at three of those in verses 6 and 7. We need to trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. We need to anticipate and long for Christ's return, and we need to prepare ourselves now, purify ourselves now, follow him now. I gave us as a church... Specific application to that end last week, Richard Baxter actually gave it to us. He said, meditate on heaven 30 minutes a day, and so we just said, hey, let's, let's bring that back to just 10 minutes, find a passage, find a verse, dive in, meditate on the second coming of Christ, meditate on the return of Jesus and on the glories of heaven just for 10 minutes a day last week, and I, right, we got to talk about it a little bit at our... Uh, dinners for eight on Friday night, how that's been going for one of the families in our church. I I wonder for you, what was this week like if you lived that out, meditating on heaven, longing for heaven? I wonder how it changed your heart, your affections, your your living. I wonder how it changed you. Oh, we're going to have the exact same encouragement this week, this Lord's Day, as we dive back into Revelation 22. We saw three ways to get ready last week. We're going to see three more ways this week to prepare for the second coming of Christ. We ask the question, how do you obey the book of Revelation? And I think in our text this morning, John's going to give us three very clear ways that we obey this book while we wait for Christ to return. Let's read it together. We w- I want to read the whole section again, verses 6 all the way through the end of the, of the chapter of the book, and ask God to bless our time together. Revelation 22, verse 6, John writes... "...and he said to me, these words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book." I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow slave of yours and of your brother and the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, as we come to the end of this book, as we come to the end of the last book of the Bible, we recognize our absolute dependency upon your grace. We are dependent upon you to enable us to see the things we're supposed to see, which is why we pray every Lord's Day, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Apart from you doing that work, we will not see what it is that we're supposed to see. But we're not just dependent on you to show us what we need to know. We're dependent on you to enable us to live out what we're supposed to do. Change our wills. Affect our desires. Prepare our hearts for your second coming, for your return. God, we are completely dependent on you for salvation, for sanctification, for glorification. We need you. So work powerfully in our midst. We ask that you would be gracious to do that. We don't deserve you working. We don't deserve, we've done nothing to earn, nothing to merit you working on our behalf right now in these moments. We're completely dependent on you. And so we come before you now just like Samuel and we say speak lord your servant listens teach us we're listening and we want we want to change grant salvation to those in this room who do not know you who are currently on their road to hell who do not understand the beauty of Christ and the horror of sin And God, bring sanctification to your saints, those that you have redeemed, those who have trusted you for salvation. Bring sanctification that we would love you more and hate sin more. Be our guide. Be our satisfaction. Be our vision. Be our hope. O Lord of our heart, be our everything in these moments. Pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verse 7 in Revelation chapter 22 says, Blessed is he who heeds or obeys, who does the things that are written in the book of Revelation. We ask the question, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because we obviously understand how to apply the things that were written in chapter 2 and 3, dealing with the churches, seven churches in Revelation and in Asia Minor at the time. We know exactly how to apply those. But the question is, how do we obey what was written in chapter 6 and following. How do we obey when we're just looking at the terrible aspects of suffering in the tribulation, the terrible uh, martyrdom, the terrible persecution that's going on, the worship of the false prophet and the worship of the Antichrist, the worship of uh, the beast? How do we apply those things? Last week, we looked at three. This week, we will see three more in verses 8 through 15, three more ways to obey the book of Revelation. Number one... If you want to take this entire book and obey it, you need to, number one, worship God exclusively. Worship God exclusively. If you are going to obey the book of Revelation, you need to worship God exclusively. This is verses 8 and 9. After Jesus says, Blessed is the one who heeds the words of this prophecy, John writes, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things these are the two avenues through which he received his prophetic revelation he's an eyewitness i saw them i heard them he's an eyewitness testimony and he says when i heard and saw i fell down to worship it's that word proskuneo in the greek that word to fall down in submission in homage in worship before someone but he did it before an angel He falls down at the feet of the angel who showed him all these things, and he starts to worship the angel. But the angel says, do not do that. Don't do that. Don't worship me. That's a command. Don't worship me. Why is that command so strong? Because an expression of misdirected worship is a sin. An expression of misdirected worship, however sincere that worship is, if it's not pointed in the right direction, it's sin. John had the proper response. When he hears everything that he's been hearing, sees everything he's been seeing, you just want to cry out, worship God and fall down at his feet and worship him. He had the right response, just not directed properly. His worship was sincere, but sincere worship that's directed at the wrong person is sincerely wrong worship. And so John is told by the angel, don't do that. This is, by the way, the second time. You remember the first time, chapter 19, verse 10, that John fell down at the feet of an angel and started to worship the angel. Uh, Maybe he, he thinks that it's Jesus because of the glory. Maybe he is just so caught up in what's going on, he just doesn't know what to do. But this is the second time that we've had an angel say to him, stop, don't do that. Worship God, don't worship me. And this is helpful and instructive to us this morning. This helps us see that regardless of your spiritual experiences, regardless of your maturity in the faith, we're talking about John, the Apostle John. Regardless of your spiritual maturity, you are never far from idolatry. You're never far from just bowing down and worshiping something that you were never supposed to worship. You're never far from making a shipwreck of your faith. You're just one worship away, one act of worship away from making a shipwreck of your faith. That's why the angel says so quickly, get up, don't worship me, worship God. Don't worship me, why? Verse 9, I'm a fellow servant of yours, literally in the Greek. I'm a fellow slave. I am a, uh, remember the, the Greek word doulos is our word for slave. I'm, I'm a slave just like you. And then uh, the, the prefix to that uh, synonym where we get synonym sin or soon, uh, together or like. Uh, synonym is a word that has two similar meanings. Uh, I am a sin doulos with you. I am just like you. I'm a slave like you. Don't worship me. Don't worship me. John gives us an example here through this angel that the first way that we are to respond as we've heard this book taught, preached, as we've meditated on it, is to worship God exclusively. Only worship Him, but do it now. Do it urgently now. Don't waste your life worshiping something else or stopping in worship of the Lord. Feast on the Lord now. Feast on Him for who He is and for what He's done in the book of Revelation He's a lion-like lamb. He's a lamb-like lion. He's our savior. He's a judge. He's a conqueror. He has the sword of truth coming from his mouth. Worship him. Find your satisfaction in him alone. And this will prepare you to meet him face-to-face on that last day. Let's think about how many people. I've been reading through some biographies of uh, people who were martyred for their faith during the Protestant Reformation. And many of them, as they are being burned at the stake, are singing songs. They're worshiping God. I just think how amazing is it that the last act that they do on earth here is exactly the same as the first act that they will be doing in heaven there. We've lost many loved ones over the course of these last two years. And I know that there are some in this room who were with their loved ones as they were passing away from this life into the next. And they were doing so with with worship music playing. They were doing so with songs around them, glorifying the Lord and saying, God, we worship you alone. And as they closed their eyes in this life, Worshiping the Lord. They open their eyes in the next life worshiping the Lord, seeing Him face to face. How do you obey the book of Revelation and how do you prepare for the return of Christ? You worship God exclusively. Number two, you proclaim God urgently. You proclaim God urgently. Don't just worship Him exclusively, but proclaim Him urgently. This is verses 10 through the first half of verse 11. The angel says, after saying, worship God, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow slave of yours. Worship God. I'm just a fellow slave like you of Christ. Worship him. Then he says, verse 10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. It's almost as if John is wrapping up. You can see him with his little pen writing down and Kind of going, we got to the end, the visions are done, the the prophecies are over, let's start wrapping it up, seal it up, and the angel says, no, 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 don't seal this up, send this out, proclaim this. Why? Because the time is near. That's exactly what John had written in chapter 1, the time is near. What is the angel saying here? We don't have time to turn there, but just write down Daniel chapter 12 in your notes, or you can write it down here. In verse 10, write down Daniel chapter 12. We've said so many times over the course of our study in the book of Revelation, if you know and understand Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, then Revelation just unfolds. It makes total sense. It's not as tricky as most people think it is if you come from an understanding of what the Old Testament prophesied about the end times. If you don't understand those books, then yes, it's going to be a little bit more tricky. But if you understand those books, there are going to be so many images and words that are ringing in your mind and your heart as you come to Revelation. And here is one of those. When the angel says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, that's exactly what an angel told Daniel in Daniel chapter 12. Only the angel told Daniel, seal up the words of this prophecy. Don't let them go. Seal them up because this is for another people group. This prophecy that I've given to you, Daniel, it's for another time. There's ages, there's epochs that have to come before these prophecies are fulfilled. So seal it up, it's not yet time. Daniel, it seems like he kind of argues a little bit. Like, no, you, you don't understand. This is such good prophecy. People need to know this. And the angel says, just do what God says. It's always the best. I think the angel here in Revelation 22 wants us to have Daniel 12 ringing in our minds. Daniel 12, seal up the book because the contents are for others. It's not for you now. It's not for your generation now. It's happening later. Revelation chapter 22, don't seal up the book because the contents are for you right now. The contents are for you right now. That's why he says, the time is near. Quickly, it's approaching quickly in the sense that we are in the last days. We are in the last age, the last epoch. There's nothing that has to happen between us and Jesus coming back. We're there. We're in the last days. The age has already dawned. And so the angel says, don't seal it up. Proclaim it. Proclaim it. Let it thunder through your churches, through your communities, through your workplaces. Let it thunder that Jesus is coming back. This specific command not to seal up the book stresses, again, there's no hidden secret meaning in this book. Just open it and let the truth be known. If the truth in this book is not clear, if you need some esoteric, mystical interpretation to understand it, if it's not just clear on its own, then this command makes no sense. Open it up. Don't seal it. Let people read it so that they can know. If you need some weird, esoteric interpretation to understand it, that command makes no sense. But if the plain, normal understanding of the words of Revelation convey the meaning that God absolutely intends and you can understand it, then this command makes sense. Open it up. Let the people know. Let the people know. Revelation doesn't say seal it up. It says proclaim it. Live like these truths. Change your life. Don't be afraid of this book. I pray one of the results of this study through Revelation is that you're you're less afraid of this book. Sure, there are things that we can't fully understand, and that's okay because they are all yet to come. There are things that are yet to come. But we can totally understand the point of this book. That's not fuzzy at all. So open it up and proclaim it. Attached to verse 10, verse 11 follows. Don't seal up the prophecy. Open it up and proclaim it. Let, verse 11, let the one who does wrong still do wrong and let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Now, this is probably the strangest verse in Revelation. And that's saying something because we've been talking about Women riding on top of beasts with heads and horns and all these different things. This is not even dealing with future events. This is dealing with the here and now. And this is probably the strangest verse in the entirety of Revelation. What does it mean? It's connected to verse 10. So the angel says, don't seal up this book. Let it go. Share Christ. Share the message of this book. Proclaim God. And then, as you're doing that, there's a natural consequence that will happen. Proclaim the truth because the time is short. And if someone rejects the claim that you are making about Christ, you can't change their hearts. It's not on you to change their hearts. If you proclaim the truth and they cover their ears, you let them reject you. You let them reject you. You proclaim. To the filthy, you proclaim to the one who does wrong and you plead with them, stop, Christ is coming back. You need a savior, you have a savior. But if they choose not to respond, you let them go. You let them go. This is not, these commands, these are commands, let the one, these are commands, but these are not commands of like uh, volition. Do this, please do this. These are commands of permission. Permission. They're imperatives of permission, not imperatives of volition and command. In English, we would say, in grammar, that this is a let of withdrawal instead of a let of positive exhortation. It's an imperative of allowing but not asking them to do this, commanding them to do this. Let me give you an example. If I say to my kids, which I've done on several occasions, hey, it's cold outside, You, you need to bring a jacket. You need to bring a jacket. And they say, I don't think it's that cold, Dad. Look, if the sun's out, we're okay, we'll be fine. They're at an age now where it's, it's good, it's right, it's appropriate for me to say, see how that goes for you, right? I wouldn't do that when they were young, right? This isn't negligence. Like, I'd put the coat on my baby. But, but now we're at a place where they need to know, hey, Dad knows what he's talking about. And you need to understand why I say the things that I say. So if I say, put on a jacket... That's a command, you need to do this, it's cold outside. If they say, "Uh, I don't think I need to. If I say, well go outside and see how it is. Go outside and try it out your way. I'm not saying I want you to disobey me, I'm allowing them see how that goes for you. I'm allowing, it's it's a command go outside but it's a command of permission, I'm allowing it. I'm saying you can do it, see how it goes. That's the command here. You're not pleading with people to keep doing wrong. You're pleading with them to stop. But if they decide, I'm going to keep doing wrong, then you allow them that because Christ is coming back quickly. A person's response to the proclamation of the gospel necessarily fixes their eternal destiny. This verse doesn't teach determinism that makes repentance and conversion impossible for some people. The invitation that we're going to see in verse 17 makes it clear that an opportunity for everyone to repent is there. But there are two very clear things that are given to us in verse 11. We see, number one, the enormous contrast between the believer and the unbeliever, both now and for all of eternity. Verse 11 is saying that the experience of eternity is so close that the decision that you're making right now is as good as done for all of eternity. That's what verse 11 is saying. You are so close, right? The time is near. You're so close to eternity that whatever choice you're making now is going to lead you into that afterlife. Whatever your pattern is today, that's going to be your pattern for all of eternity because the time is so close. You don't know if you have tomorrow. We don't know if Christ is coming back tomorrow. We also don't know if we're going to die tomorrow. So turn now. If you hate God here, you're going to hate God eternally. If you love and cherish God here, you're going to enjoy Him forever. Your experience in eternity will reflect the trajectory of your life here. Secondly, it teaches us the impossibility of any changes in the eternal state of both believers and unbelievers. What we decide now, we must decide because there is no opportunity for us to change our decision after we die. It's appointed and a man wants to die and then comes judgment. Who you are at this present moment is who you will be if you do not change. Present choices fix character. And this verse is saying, because the time is so near, if you are living in sin now, you're going to be living in sin forever. The time is so close, there's urgency here. The afterlife isn't a time for choosing, there is a time coming when change is impossible. And your present choices and character will seal permanent character for all of eternity. Eternity is a time for reaping what we have sown, for experiencing the consequences of our choosing. As one pastor said, you will not be choosing to lie down when it is impossible to stand up. There's a day coming when you won't have a choice. And so verse 11 says, proclaim God urgently because there's a day coming when you have no choice to change. Change while there is still time. Plead with people around you to repent and be reconciled to Christ while there is still time. Worship. Worship God exclusively. Proclaim God urgently. If you want to obey Revelation, worship God exclusively and proclaim God urgently. Finally, number three, if you want to obey this book and prepare your hearts for the coming of Christ, number three, obey God joyfully. Obey God joyfully. So verse 11 gives us at the beginning a very dire warning to non-believers, change because there's there's coming a time when you will never be able to change. But there's an encouragement to believers at the end. Let the one who is righteous still keep on practicing righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep on practicing holiness. Do this. Keep on living in this. If you love Christ, keep on pursuing Him. Don't let off the gas pedal. Don't press cruise control. Keep on going for the exact same reason as the non-believer would stay in their own sin. You keep on going because the time is near. Christ is coming back. Our Master is about to return. Keep on going. Literally in Greek, it's in a middle voice. It's a command that's in the middle voice, which is do this to yourself. Uh, active voice, you would say, I hit the ball. I'm doing the work. Uh, passive, the ball was hit. Middle voice is, I hit myself. It's, you're doing this to yourself. So keep yourself righteous. Keep yourself holy. Live a pure life. Don't let off that gas pedal. This is what we saw last week in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who has their hope fixed on the return of Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. Now we don't get righteous by doing good things. We don't begin, we, we don't begin our salvation. We don't begin our own righteousness by doing righteous things. We can't do anything righteous on our own. But once God saves us, once God takes those, those good deeds that we used to do, but they were just filthy rags, once we, once we take our pockets, we open them up, we turn them out, we say, I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing to offer you, God. I am bankrupt morally. I'm not going to get to heaven because I'm a good person. We just had this conversation as a family in the car yesterday. We we're talking about heaven. We we're talking about death and dying. We we're talking about heaven and hell. And, and I asked my sons, how do you get to heaven? And they said, trust Jesus alone. And I said, yes, Like, this is like brownie points for parenting, right? I'm just like, this is amazing. And Tyler goes, and try your best. And I I said, no. (laughs) I said, what do you mean, Ty? And he said, well, you want to obey God. I said, oh, absolutely. We want to obey God. But can obeying God get you into heaven? And he just, the most confused look for Tyler. No? And so we walk through the gospel. We walk through this very passage of the reality of getting into heaven is not our effort. We don't do anything to get into heaven. We can't earn heaven. You can try to be a nice person, a good person, but ultimately you have to be perfect if you're going to get to heaven on your own. You have to be perfect. And all of us know we're not perfect. If you've ever felt guilty or felt shame, that tells us we're not perfect, right? We know we're not perfect. So if we're no longer perfect, we have zero hope of getting into heaven on our own, how do we get to heaven? We plead for the perfection of another. We say, Jesus, I cannot get to heaven on my own. I need you and your righteousness placed into my account my only hope, my one righteousness. I have no other hope apart from you. Will you please give me your perfect record of righteousness and take my sin upon yourself, punished at the cross, in my place condemned he stood. Will you do that for me? And knowing that he has based off of the word of God, I trust you. I trust in that sacrifice. Not my own goodness, not my own righteousness. I trust that sacrifice. So let it be clear, you do not do good works to get saved. Works do not save you, but once you are saved by Jesus Christ himself alone, you get to work. You don't work in order to get saved. You work because you've already been saved. You don't work and you don't live out righteousness because you want to earn God's love. You work and you live out righteousness because God has already lavished his love upon you. If you're given the gift of righteousness, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 say it's a gift, it's the grace of God, it's not a result of works that no one would boast. If you've been given that gift of grace, Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works that he prepared beforehand for us that we would walk in them. So we work, but we work only because he did the work at the beginning, he started the work, he's helping us in the midst of the work. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he will finish the work himself. He who began that good work in you will complete it. So here, verse 11, if you want to prepare yourself for the second coming, if you want to obey the book of Revelation, you're going to keep on obeying God joyfully. Why? Verse 12, behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. My reward is with me. He's coming back to reward you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He's coming back to give you rewards. We talked about this a few months ago, about the the beautiful doctrine of the rewards in heaven that we will receive. Believers will be rewarded. Good works that we've done in the name of Christ, only because He gave us those good works to walk in beforehand, those last for all of eternity. Our sin will just be a record of debt, burned up, gone, canceled. And then everything else that's just wasteful, it's that wood, hay, and stubble, burned up. It's just pointless. But He is coming back to reward us. This is Hebrews chapter 12, or Hebrews chapter 11, rather, when God says, Without faith, it's impossible to please me. He then says, For if you want to have faith and you want to please God, whoever wants to do that, whoever will have faith, must believe two things. That God is, that he exists, and that he's the rewarder of all who trust in him. So my question is, number one, do you believe that God exists? And number two, do you believe that he's going to reward you specifically, intentionally, purposefully? He's going to go through everything you've ever done and say, this was done for me. We say it a lot at our church, only what's done for Christ will last But if it's done for Christ, in His name, for His glory, and God sees it, and He sees it in in those private moments when we don't even know, if anyone else knows what's going on, He sees it, He'll reward you. He's a rewarder. He's also a judge. He will render to every man. Look at how comprehensive His judgment will be. He will render to every man, every person without exception according to what you've done, to what you've done. It corresponds to your deeds, your words, your thoughts, your actions. You will not stand before Jesus on the basis of what your family believes. You will not stand before Jesus on the basis of what they think or what they've done. You will stand before Jesus based on your own deeds, individually. You may think, that in this life, staying close to the quote-unquote right people, maybe you're staying close to the right people, religious people, spiritual people, mature people, you may think that staying close to those kinds of people will make you safe on Judgment Day. But on that day, you will feel the most individual, the most alone. God will look at you and you alone, and His judgment will determine your eternal destiny, here in verse 12, as we have been covered by the blood of Christ and we have been forgiven and we have been ushered into eternity with him, we're rewarded because we're saved. But if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you have not repented of sin, you've not turned to trust in Christ, you don't know why he is worthy of worship. I just I want to encourage you, don't leave until you've talked with somebody here. Just ask them the question, why is Jesus so amazing? Why do you follow him? Why do you worship him? Why do you love him? Why is he worthy of all of that worship? My prayer is that every single person in this room would know why Jesus is better than life itself. He's more satisfying than anything you can possibly imagine in this life, whether bad things and sin, whether good things and good gifts that God's given, He's better than all of it. Obey Him. Follow Him. Obey Him. Who is the Him? Verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Three different titles, Alpha and Omega. Very interesting. It's a title that God the Father took upon Himself in chapter 1, verse 8, and chapter 21, verse 6. And here Jesus is saying, that's him. God the Father, God the Son, individual persons saying the exact same thing about themselves because they are both God, very God. Alpha and the Omega, I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. I am he from whom all being has proceeded and to whom it will all return first and the last, applies only to Jesus. That title applies only to Jesus in Revelation. But in Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6 and 48, verse 12, it refers to Yahweh. So again, we have a beautiful description in this entire passage, not only of the reality that uh, you shouldn't worship an angel, you should worship God. The, The angel twice in the book of Revelation says, don't worship me, worship God. And we've also seen John fall down and worship Jesus, and Jesus never says, whoa, whoa, whoa don't worship me, worship God. He receives it because he is God. So to hear Jesus is taking titles upon himself that are titles that God the Father has taken upon himself. He is God. He's the beginning and the end. This applies to the Father in chapter 21, verse 6. A very similar description is given in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the author and the finisher of our faith. God will finish what he started. He's the rewarder. He's the judge. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. So how do we come to him? How do we obey him? Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Blessed are those. Verse 14, this is the last beatitude in the book of Revelation. There were seven of them. This is the seventh. Chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in them for the time is near. Chapter 14, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, how blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Chapter 16, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk around naked, and men will not see his shame. Chapter 19, verse 9. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Chapter 20, verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. And number 6, chapter 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And then here, the last of the seven beatitudes, the blessings that are given. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Again, this is a, a present progressive verb. It's a continually washing their robes. They're continually going back to the Lord and saying, God, thank you for forgiveness that's offered in Christ. Thank you for newness of life. Thank you that I'm a new creation and that you began the good work in me and I'm working through the process of sanctification. Help me to make it safely home. This is a metaphor that came straight from chapter uh, 7, verse 14, when John sees that enormous multitude in heaven and says, who are these? And the angel says, you know, my Lord, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The reality is we all carry around a robe. You're holding one right now. You have a robe you're holding and you're adding to this robe every day. Filth, sin, stains. And for every Effort that we make to try and get rid of the stains, we look at it and we go, oh, that's bad. And we try to use one of those tied pencils to try and get it out. Something, you know, put it in the wash, fades a little bit. For every effort that we do to clean our own robes of its filthiness, of their filthiness, the filth remains, and it just seeps into it, and it gets worse and worse and worse. This is what we've made of our lives. We all have a robe that's just... Filled with filth. Jeremiah says about this robe, God says through Jeremiah, even if you wash that robe with soap, the stain of your guiltiness is still ever in front of my eyes. So we say, okay, look at my life, mess after mess, sin after sin, filth after filth. What can wash away my sin? And God says, I have a fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood that's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners, filthy sinners plunged into that flood, lose all their guilty stains. You take that robe and you give it to Jesus and you say, Can you help me wash? I've tried on my own and it's pointless. I've done everything I can do to cleanse myself and it never works. Can you help me? God the Father says, let's go to the fountain. Let's bathe in that blood. And though we would think naturally blood's going to stain it even more, the blood permeates through the robes of our unrighteousness and makes us white as snow. He's provided you cleansing. Through his crimson blood. Have you been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? What does it take to get to this tree? There's a blessing. You want to be in heaven? You want to be at this tree of life? You want to enter through the gates? What does it take? You have to wash your robe. And more specifically, you have to take your robe to Jesus who will wash it for you. You have to wash your robe. Will you do that? Think of how many people will do the craziest things to get into a, a movie, let's say, right? A brand new movie coming out, some you know, Marvel movie or something, and they will wait up all night long on their computer pressing refresh as fast as they can to try and get the tickets to try and buy them before they sell out. I don't even know if this is the thing anymore, but you remember when people used to line up around like a Best Buy to try and get an iPhone? Right? They'd camp out in their little tents and wait for a little tiny brick of electronics. What people do to get things in this life borders on insanity. What will you do to get to heaven? Jesus says, this is it. This is all you have to do. No waiting in line. No clicking refresh. Give me your robes. Stop trying to cleanse yourself. Stop trying to be good enough. Give me your robes. Let me change you from the inside out and give you eternal life. The outside is filled with the dogs. No, that doesn't mean uh, literal animal dogs are on the outside and that means there aren't animals in heaven. We already talked about that. There are going to be animals in heaven. Praise the Lord. This is a reference to outsiders. This is a reference to uh, all over the Bible, Gentiles, uh, Judaizers, really bad people. list goes on and on. Anyone who is involved in sin in a practicing way, an ongoing way, an unrepentant way. And they love, at the end, lying and practicing lying. Specifically, those who loved worshiping the Antichrist and lying about the truth of who God truly is. How blessed are those who wash their robes. Come to Jesus today. Know that your robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Knowing that Jesus is coming back soon, we obey the book of Revelation by, number one, worshiping God exclusively. Number two, proclaiming God urgently. And number three, obeying God joyfully. Which, if you understand what those three aspects are, they're all really one reality together. They're three aspects of one reality. If you understand who God is rightly, you will not be able to contain your love for him. You will worship him the way you're supposed to worship him because of who he is and because of what he's done. And if you worship Him and Him alone, you will not be able to help yourself but share Christ. You won't be able to contain your love and excitement for who God is and for what He has done. And if you are loving others by sharing Christ, and if you're loving Christ and finding your greatest satisfaction in Him, then you are going to obey Him joyfully. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus says. Conversely, if you're struggling in one of these areas, you're going to struggle in all of them. If you find in yourself, if you're listening to this message and you're looking through those three aspects and you say, I don't even remember the last time I shared the gospel with somebody. Then I can tell you, biblically, you're not obeying joyfully because God tells us to share the gospel. And you're not sharing the gospel because you're not worshiping him exclusively. There's something in your heart that is finding satisfaction somewhere else. And so you're saying, "Mm, I mean, God's great and all, but I don't really need to tell everybody around me about that. Instead of, if you truly love him, and you love him more than anything in the world, you will not be able to contain your excitement about telling others, though I was lost, now I'm found. Though I was blind, now I see. You have to meet Jesus. So my question to you this morning, as we wrap up, number one, What do you tend to find your satisfaction in other than Jesus? If we're called to worship God exclusively, I don't think that you and I have any propensity to worship an angel. I don't think that's necessarily our struggle. I haven't fallen down at the feet of an angel and worshipped him, and the angel says, get up, don't worship me, worship God. That's not happened in my lifetime, and I don't really ever expect it to. But I bow down and worship things all the time that are not God. Usually they're really good things, good gifts that God has given, but they're not God. And God's gifts make terrible gods. So can I just ask you, be honest. Where do you go to find satisfaction? And I can also tell you probably the the best way to figure out where you go to find your satisfaction, figure out what you tend to evangelize about the most. We all evangelize. Everyone is sharing a gospel. You're telling people what is worthy of their affections, what's worthy of their love, what's worthy of their devotion, their excitement. We're all evangelizing. Maybe it's something related to sports or something related to video games or something related to uh, movies or something related to relationships of marriage and love and intimacy. We're all evangelizing about what we love the most. So if you're not evangelizing about Christ, my guess is that he is not your highest affection. So what do you find satisfaction in other than Jesus? What do you tend to speak most often about? What do you need to talk about when you don't need to talk about anything? When you don't have anything you have to say, what do you usually say? That's what you're probably finding joy in and satisfaction in. What's the lens with which you see everything? Do you see all of God's commands as good for your greatest good and for his greatest glory? Do you delight to image him to the world? We say this often in my family. We say this often at CBC. God makes every rule that he makes to keep you safe, and to make you happy. He truly does. He knows how life works best. He invented it. And so he's not making rules saying, hey, I know that this is really fun to do, but I'm just a cosmic killjoy, and I'm going to say no. He makes every rule that he makes to navigate us through life to total joy and blessedness, right? Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who doesn't walk according to the counsel of the world, but walks according to and delights in the law of the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I meditate on heaven. I live so much more walking by the Spirit than when I'm not meditating on those realities. And not just that Jesus is going to return, but that He is going to return at any moment. It doesn't make us lazy as believers, it makes us joyfully get to work. So, how do we obey Revelation? We worship God exclusively. We proclaim God urgently. We don't have much more time. And we obey him joyfully, knowing that he's coming back to reward. Father, we thank you so much for our time in your word this morning. And really in culmination, it leads us to worship you not only through the preaching of your word, but to worship you through the singing of your word. God, we ask that you would be our everything, that you would be our delight, that you'd be our greatest satisfaction that you would be our vision, that everything that we see would be seen through the lens of Christ. And we ask that you would bring us safely home. O high King of heaven, my victory won. Win for us that victory which you accomplished at the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven sun. We know that that is a yes and amen because of Christ. We want to delight in Him now. Help us to do that through Your Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please stand with.